the Pirates are terrible at baseball as currently constituted. They also are missing 11 players. Believe it or not, both things can be true. Good morning to you. Good Monday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio, the podcasting network that brings you this show and several others through the week. All we ask in return is that you set your devices to automatic downloads, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Anchor, whatever it is, they all offer that option. Really helps out this little business and makes things easier on you too. We're just in there kind of waiting for you to hit the play button. The Pirates won't be hitting the play button today in St. Louis. I was supposed to fly out myself this morning for a return trip to Bush Stadium That's been canceled by Major League Baseball, by the Cardinals, first and foremost, because of their continuing issues with the coronavirus. I'll be getting into that and other coronavirus-related topics in the second segment. For right now, I, I got a little bit of a bug about this, and I'm Gonna spit this out here in something of a rant. The Pirates are three and thirteen right now. It's tied for the worst sixteen game start in the franchise's hundred thirty four year history. So it's terrible no matter how you cut it up. They've been bad offensively. They've been bad at pitching. They've been okay at fielding, I guess. I mean, there's been some lapses, but it's not like they've made a comedy out of anything out in the field. But they've been so bad at the other two that it hasn't mattered. When they score a bunch of runs, they give up a bunch more. When they hold the other team down, they don't score any. Kind of like what happened in the game yesterday. A loss to the Tigers. The Tigers came in here and swept the Pirates. The Tigers did that. They were the worst team in baseball last year. They are that no longer. The Pirates are that. There's nowhere to run from that. There's nowhere to hide from it. They're having a terrible season. They're having a season that could threaten, even within the limited scope of a 60-game schedule, some franchise futility marks along the way. We'll leave that to the historians to figure out how this would compare to a full regular season once it's all played out. However, have you noticed, because I certainly have, that there is absolutely no one anywhere who mentions that the Pirates have injuries, not even one or two injuries. Even that doesn't get mentioned. Even a couple of key players, even players that they happen to know and love, never gets mentioned. Not by anybody, not by media, not by fans, nowhere. It just never comes up. And the reason for that, and I'm positive of this, I'm absolutely positive of this, is that people like to be right. They like to go into a situation and say they saw something coming and it played out exactly the way they said it would in terms of outcome and results. And therefore, that's good enough for me. 
So all the people who looked at the Pirates' payroll going into this season and said, wow, they're going to be terrible without even knowing the names of most of the Pirates' players and just said, they're going to be awful, terrible. They might only win, I don't know, this was back when we thought there was going to be 162 games. They might only win 30 or 40 games, worst team ever, just because of the payroll. When you challenge these people and you ask them, do they actually know anything about the team? Who's the left fielder? They don't even know who Brian Reynolds is. They just like to pile on. It's like tag a troll, you know, where one person says something, so the next person says it, and it's the cool thing to do. So everyone says the Pirates are going to stink. The Pirates actually do stink, and that's that. So when I've brought up injuries, here's what I get back almost invariably. You're making excuses. That's what you're doing. You're making excuses. There's no excuses. This team was going to stink anyway. If they had all those guys, they would still stink. They would still be blah, 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 blah. That's how that goes. Okay. So here I am trying to reconcile these two things. One, the Pirates currently, obviously, glaringly stink. Not an opinion. Pure fact. Two, the Pirates have 11 players out. Eleven. Eleven players out from a 28-man roster. I haven't bothered to do the percentage on that, but it's a big portion of the roster. And as for who's missing, I'm going to read you the names. It's 10 of them out of the 11 who are all the way out. One of them, Joe Musgrove, who was scratched from his start yesterday against the Tigers because of an ankle issue. He's not technically out-out, but I'm going to count him among the 11 because until I see him back on the mound, I'm not going to believe that he's healthy since he was scratched just yesterday. Out of this group, three of them are starting pitchers. So it's 60%. There, I got the math on that one. 60% of your total starting rotation, your projected starting rotation, isn't participating. That being Musgrove, Mitch Keller, who's got the left side injury, and Chris Archer, who we knew beforehand was going to miss the entire season because of the thoracic outlet syndrome procedure that he had back in July. Three-fifths of your projected starting rotation are out. When I was suggesting that the Pirates could be competitive... In 2020, believe you me, I wasn't doing so with the idea that three-fifths of the starting rotation wouldn't be available because I knew very well what was behind those guys in terms of depth. But wait, wait, there's more. The bullpen, the projected closer was going to be Keone Kella, who has yet to throw a pitch in a game this season because of a coronavirus issue, a positive test that he had back in July that wasn't really fully cleared up and the Pirates and Major League Baseball had to keep him out out of an abundance of caution. Regardless, he hasn't pitched. Keone Kella was supposed to be the closer. If it wasn't going to be Kella, it was going to be Kyle Crick. Kyle Crick, after a couple games, went down with a shoulder injury. If it wasn't going to be Kella or Crick, it was going to be Nick Birdie, who looked wonderful, throwing 100 miles an hour, throwing bullets left and right. And then he, sadly, again, went down, this time to an elbow injury, 
and it doesn't sound particularly promising for him. He's definitely out for the season. Top three relievers. Three starters, top three relievers. All gone. Clay Holmes and Michael Feliz are out too. Roll your eyes at both of those, but Holmes, of whom I've been maybe the most ardent critic in town, showed really, really well early on. Looked very promising. Those of you who do watch these games as opposed to just mimicking what you hear on the radio can attest to how well Holmes looked, particularly in that opening series in St. Louis. And he was stretched out, too. He could have been put into some long relief or piggyback settings. Still might. He's not done for the year. But he's out. Top three relievers, two other relievers. That's five relievers out of the projected seven-man staff. Five out of seven. The position players haven't been hit anywhere near as hard as that. Kevin Kramer was out before the season. Luke Maley, the backup catcher, who would have helped defensively and would have been an upgrade over John Ryan Murphy, was also lost just before the season. And Philip Evans, we all saw what happened to him over the weekend, running into Gregory Polanco's elbow, fracturing his jaw. He's going to be out a long while. I'd be surprised if he wasn't out for the season. And he actually had been the Pirates' most productive, consistent hitter. On the hitter front, I'm more than willing to give the cynics the benefit of the doubt that the Pirates, quote, would have stunk anyway, end quote. Because there is no excuse for Brian Reynolds, Kevin Newman, Josh Bell, and now Colin Moran, too, who's really fallen off after all those early home runs, and Polanco and everybody else. It's just been abysmal. This lineup has been terrible. I don't even know where to start pointing the finger on that because Rick Eckstein, the hitting coach who brought the best out of them last season, is still the hitting coach this season. The individuals who were responsible for them hitting so well last season are still the individuals this season. They've just been rotten. That's the closest you can come to the they would have stunk anyway argument. But to say with a straight face that the pirates would be 3 and 13 3 and 13 with all 11 of these guys that i just mentioned hale and healthy and participating on a daily basis that's just stupid okay that's all that is that's bashing the pirates for the sake of bashing the pirates would they have won the bleeping world series no would they have made the playoffs no could they have hung around Sure, it's a 60-game season. Anything could have happened. That was my point all along. That was my point going back into the early part of the summer. A lot of things have gone wrong for this team since the start of this season. Not just in terms of performance, but also some of the managing that's happened. The approach that Derek Shelton has taken to his lineups, the approach that Derek Shelton has taken to some game situations has been abominable. I've discussed that, talked about it at length, ripped the guy, wondered if he's in over his head. That's a factor. 
The offensive guys not hitting is also a big factor. But don't, just for the sake of convenience, just for the sake of perpetuating that you made some bold prediction back in May or June because you saw a low payroll, suggest for one second that losing 11 players from a major league roster has no impact on a team being 3-13. and 13. Uh, This stuff drives me nuts. It really does. You know what? I promise. We're going to take this break. I'm going to go make a coffee. In that time, I'm going to come back in a much, much better mood, and we're going to talk about something that's actually even worse and more agitating than this. So, yeah, I had the Southwest plane ticket, had the hotel room booked at the Marriott Grand in downtown St. Louis. I was just there a couple weeks ago, kind of know the territory. Everything was all set up for my trip. Poof, there it goes. Just like that. The Cardinals joined the Marlins, of course, a little more than a week ago in the category of teams that are being uh, infected and delayed by the coronavirus. They're not permitted to play. They're being quarantined. They're being kept away from each other. They're being tested repeatedly. The tests are being rushed, but there's really not that much you can do because once it's in there, it's in there. Once it's made its way around enough individuals There's enough cross-pollination between players, coaches, staff, and everybody else in this environment that it's going to be bad news. And it has been for both the Marlins, who are now back on the field and beating everybody, by the way, and the Cardinals, who haven't played in seven days and who now won't play the Pirates in the three games that had been set for tonight, tomorrow, and Wednesday at Bush. John Mazeliak, the general manager of the Cardinals, spoke somewhat passionately with reporters in St. Louis yesterday saying that there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from other teams in baseball, from the Marlins and from the Cardinals and from other smaller isolated cases in terms of how to prevent this sort of thing, but then also once it does make it in how to manage it, how to deal with it more aggressively, more efficiently. They're the first. They're going to learn. Everyone's going to get better at it. They're going to push through, too. They are going to push through. Baseball is going to get this season done. I have no doubts about that. And if you want a good example of that, a good example of why I would believe that, I'll turn you instead to a third team, and that's the Cleveland Indians, who yesterday sent pitcher Zach Plesak. That name sounds familiar. He's the son of Dan Plesak, former Pirates lefty reliever, who's now a an analyst on MLB Network. They sent him home from their road trip. They found out 
that he had gone out partying with his buds on a road trip and thus broke team rules and thus broke Major League Baseball rules and thus they didn't want him around and they told him, get out. Get out. You're not coming near anybody. You're not doing this to the rest of us. How did they find out? Simple. He got busted. Remember truant officers when you were in high school? The ones who would go uh, to the local video game parlor or ice cream parlor, depending on your uh, your age, and see you there or see your buddies there and bust you. What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Aren't you supposed to be in class? Ever since the Marlins fiasco, Major League Baseball put in the equivalent of truant officers. They have security people to... Guard might be too strong a word, but maybe not. Basically work the hotels when these teams are on the road and make sure that nobody's running out. Make sure that nobody's ordering out. Make sure that nobody's going to party or to casinos or to nightclubs or whatever it is. They're handling it that way. Is it going to work? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Would it work over a six-month season? Absolutely, unequivocally not. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a couple of months. And then by the time playoffs start, you're going to see Major League Baseball move these events to single locations similar to what is happening right now in the NHL and the NBA. They'll get through it. They'll figure it out. Baseball will get there. I Really, baseball's taking a lot of heat for this stuff. Every time there's a positive test, it's blowing up. But baseball really didn't have a choice. Don't talk to me about bubbles when you're talking about 30 teams playing 60 games in 64 days. You can't put that in a bubble. There's no bubble that exists. If you wanted to do it in Florida and Arizona, you'd really have a heck of an argument to make considering those have been two of the hardest hit states. No chance. It was either going to be this or not at all. And it's going to be this, and they're going to pull it off. Who won't pull it off are the power conferences in college football. The Power Five commissioners met in an extraordinary situation in and of itself that the five of them get together and even acknowledge that the other exists. Yesterday, and they seemed to be engaged in a discussion not so much of whether or not we should do this but which of us is going to go first in saying that our season is cancelled and that's all you need to know about where college football will be in 2020 whether it's the Big Ten, the ACC, the SEC and again there were all different kinds of reports as to who was going to go first, who was going to be the one that stands stands up and says we're out and it makes it look like then they forced everyone else's hand. What they want, what the commissioners made known to each other that they want is to present a unified front on this, and I think that's smart. Whether that happens today uh, or tomorrow, as seems to be the most common thinking, uh, for all five of them, and ideally as well, even if he's just a figurehead, Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, could join them in that and say, listen, we can't do this. We're not going to pull this off this fall. They can push it off. 
till the spring. I'm actually okay with that. I know there are people that don't like it. If you have college football in the spring, all of the players who have eligibility for that season, in this case for the tw- what's technically the 2020 season, that would spill over for some players, obviously, into 2021, presuming they'd make bowl games and the like. They all retain their eligibility. You don't mess with any of that stuff. You don't mess with red shirts or whatever else. The only thing that gets affected in my mind by spring college football is the caliber of play. And by that, I'm specifically referencing what will be a torrent of opt-outs. We saw in the past week several opt-outs around the NCAA. I believe the last number that I saw before all of this hit was in the 70 range, including... Notably around here, Jalen Twyman, the terrific star defensive tackle that the Pitt Panthers have, he was the first to opt out of that group. Might not have been the last, but he was yet another sign that this was not going to go well. When you opt out, you're out. And that means fall, spring, whatever. So Twyman won't be back if there's college football in the spring. And you know what? He'll have way more company then those 70 when that comes around. And the reason for that is pretty simple if you think about it. Those players are going to be coming close to what would be the time period for the NFL scouting combine in Indianapolis, which is normally at the end of February. It would obviously have to be pushed back if there's college football happening in the spring. But still, you're that much closer to the combine. You're that much closer to being, you think, you hope, drafted. This isn't some Puritan exercise college football. These players want and deserve to get their paydays. That only happens one way on this planet. That means you get into the NFL, whether you're drafted, you're undrafted, whatever it is, you have to do everything that you can to be as ready as possible in your draft-eligible year for NFL teams to look at you, for NFL teams to value you, and ultimately for NFL teams to pay you. That's not going to happen if the players who think they'll be drafted participate in springtime college football. I really believe that. You're going to hear from uh, Kevin Colbert and other GMs around the NFL. You know, we value watching players play college football. Colbert says that all the time. Mike Tomlin says it all the time. And they should. That's great. You do want to see players playing. That's the ultimate way to show (laughs) whether or not you can play football, right? But this is different. This is different. This is them... These players putting their, not just their livelihoods, but everything they've committed in their lives toward football on the line, and then just showing up to Indianapolis, what, two, three weeks later, a month later, whatever it is, the NFL can't postpone that thing indefinitely either. So you're going to see college football looking a lot more like college basketball where there's a lot of players that you know would be the best players out there, not out there. 
there's going to be a lot of absences. And there's going to be a huge dip in star value for that. However, on the plus side, if you're the colleges, again, you get to keep all the eligibility and everything else in order. But you know what else you get? You get football all to yourself. Really, the NFL is just going to forge ahead. The NFL's got a schedule. The NFL is going to follow it. They're going to have their own issues too, but they're not going to be held back. That means the NFL will be done, will be completed. Maybe not the Super Bowl, maybe not the conference championships, but the NFL will be pretty much out of the way. It's probably the best way to put it before college football would start up. So once college football starts up, it's going to be kind of like that XFL factor where the XFL would come in just because they know there's no NFL and everybody loves to watch football. So here's some football. Only this will be football that people can really relate to because it's their colleges. And I think it could do good things for the colleges. Never mind that by pushing football back, By pushing college football back, you buy time for, you know, society to find answers for this thing. Maybe even a vaccine. Maybe we'll even have people in. And these colleges and their athletic programs won't lose untold gazillions of dollars of money. So I like the plan. I'm a little leery of some of the implications, but I think it'll get there. Uh, One way or another... We got to push through this. I've been saying that from the beginning. Sports has to find a way to push through this. We can't just shut down and cower under a table. No, that doesn't mean we need to be all macho and tougher than the virus and everything else like that. But there are ways to do this. There are ways to do this safely, smartly, and without significant repercussions. So, yeah. One way or another, I'll be rebooking that flight to St. Louis, I'm sure. Thanks so much for listening to this. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.